0: Many years ago, when I was a Ph.D. student at Duke, I was hanging out with some of my African-American friends, and they were just talking with one another about the different racial incidents that they had experienced that day. And after they finished, I was, I was shocked, because I thought the civil rights movement had taken care of all that, and that people were just complaining too much, and these things didn't really happen regularly. So, I asked my friend Arthur, who was still there, "Do these things happen very often?" He gave me a look and then said, "You know, my first English class at Duke I was the only African American in the class and at the end of the class the uh, after everybody else had left, the professor called me over and said, "You need to drop this class and if uh, if you tell anybody that I told you this, it'll be your word against mine. And I was, I was horrified and shocked. I hadn't believed that racism was endemic because it hadn't happened to me. But then, it wouldn't have happened to me. I mean, white people outnumber black people to such an extent that if, if only 10% of white people were overtly racist, it could still affect African Americans on a regular basis. There's some things that we'll never know unless we listen to the people who've experienced those things. I've talked about that regarding miracles in the past. It's, it's also true in terms of people's experiences of racism and so forth. So today I'm going to be telling more stories than I usually tell um, since the issue that we're talking about wasn't already an issue in the first century, but the principles of the issue were an issue in the first century. These principles, though, extend far beyond black and white. Certainly, they they apply to African Americans, one-third of whom died during the Middle Passage uh, across the Atlantic during the slave trade. But it applies also to Native Americans who experienced genocide. Uh, My my brother's wife is from Shanghai in China. Um, My brother and his wife live in California, and of course, that doesn't seem like a big thing. But 12 years before I was born, There was still a law in the books prohibiting uh, white people and Chinese people from marrying in California. So take my illustrations as merely one sample of what we could be talking about. In verses 11 and 12 of Ephesians chapter 2, we read about alienated Gentiles. Well, that, that was probably almost all of us here. To stick to the theme, I'm not gonna give a full exegesis of this, but note the emphasis on circumcision in verse 11. Sympathizers with Jewish worship were welcome. There were a lot of God-fearing Gentiles who attended synagogues throughout the the Mediterranean world. Um, But circumcision was necessary if they wanted to become full members of God's people. And as you can guess, circumcision was kind of a deterrent to adult males. But in Christ, uh, Romans chapter 2 says that in Christ, we've been spiritually circumcised. So, uh, Colossians also says that. Galatians chapter 3 says that all of us in Christ have become children of Abraham. You, you guys know that song, right? Sing it with me. Father Abraham has many, uh, uh kids. You've got to use inclusive language here. <clears throat> but, but these Gentiles were separated from God's people. Uh, so, so we have an example of ethnic separation. And this was becoming more and more severe, especially in Judea during this period. Uh, Herod Agrippa I was king from the years 41 to 44, and, and it revived the nationalism in Judea to a great extent. But after he died, there were a series of corrupt Roman procurators that really abused the province, and as a result of that... There, there was a lot of uh, backlash, and the nationalism was rising in the 40s and the 50s until it eventually culminated within a decade of, of the time that, that Paul is writing this letter. It eventually culminated in a war and the destruction of Jerusalem. S- uh, now, you know, those were the kinds of tensions that existed in society, but we, we all know that society's tensions, uh, political, cultural, otherwise, would never spill over into the church, right? But uh, Paul has to deal with these kinds of issues. He deals with a segregated lunch counter in Antioch in Galatians chapter 2. Well, today most of us probably don't feel marginalized as Gentiles. In fact, if, I mean, it's more likely that Messianic Jews feel marginalized than the Gentiles feel marginalized because Gentiles are the majority of the church today. But who else could be marginalized in the, in the wider body of Christ in a given country? My own deepest brokenness came in 1987, when my wife ran off with her best friend's husband, uh, not Medin. Uh, <laughs> but uh, my wife ran off with her best friend's husband, and I, and I fought the divorce for two years trying to get her back. Um, but she wouldn't, she wouldn't come back, and eventually uh, she was able to secure the divorce under uh, that state law. Uh, based on two-year separation, and and she and the guy married each other. Um, I was so, so numb. i have been praying for two hours a day beforehand, but after it happened, all I could do was just repeat the name of Jesus over and over. I was totally devastated. I just wanted to die. And my denomination said, well, we know it wasn't your fault, but, you know, we have to uphold the standard, so you can't be a minister with us. Uh, to me, it seems kind of like saying to a mugging victim, you know, we're against mugging, and so to uphold the standard, you can't be a minister with us. But in any case, <clears throat> I was pretty devastated. And at that point, an African-American grandmother who was raising her five grandchildren by herself felt led to reach out to me, and I became kind of part of their family, not, not living in the same, in the same uh, home, but just kind of across the street from them. Uh, in a housing project, and they knew all about my culture. And, and I knew almost nothing about their culture. My best friend in high school was African American. We went witnessing together after we both got saved about the same time. But I, I hadn't learned anything about the culture. Here I was a supposedly educated person, and I didn't know how a vast number of people in my own country were living, but because they were a minority culture, they knew everything about my culture. They took me to their church and I found in the black church that they knew how to deal with pain in a way that most of the white churches I've been part of didn't. I mean, the white churches I've been part of had a lot of resources, a lot of good things to share, but each part of the body of Christ, because of our heritage, has something to share with other parts of the body of Christ. And the African American church knew how to deal with pain and they put me back together and I owe my life to them. Why why might the black church know how to deal with pain? Sin at its core is often selfishness. Racism, like nationalism, sexism, and a host of other isms, is just selfishness taken to a corporate level, my group versus somebody else's group. In its most hideous forms, it yields slavery or genocide. David Walker in 1830, when slavery was... Uh, officially still being practiced David Walker uh, an African American Christian wrote about hypocritical white Christians as white devils and Malcolm X of course and then Nation of Islam picked this up and generalized it in a wider way speaking of white devils and you know what as I was part of the, the African American church and they were nursing me back to wholeness and I was realizing what it cost my brothers and sisters to love me the way they did as I realized a lot of these people had, had lived through the sit-ins, had suffered during the civil rights movement, and these were the people who were reaching out to me in love. As I, as I began to read the slave narratives and read what people who looked like me had done to people who looked like my friends, I realized Malcolm X was right. White people are devils. He was only wrong in supposing that the rest of us aren't. Because Jesus says in John 8.44 that all of us are children of the devil until we get that devil nature born out of us by being born of the Spirit of God. But if we've been born from the Spirit of God, that should certainly make a difference in how we live and how we treat one another. and how we should stand with one another in the face of the injustice that some of our own brothers and sisters face. In verses 13 to 16, we see that Christ shattered the dividing wall. Now you say, this is a dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. Well, that is what the text is talking about. But remember that that dividing wall was a dividing wall that was established by God himself. So if God would summon us to surmount a barrier that he himself established in history, how much more would he summon us to surmount every other barrier that's been established merely by the history of human sinfulness? There was one town where I, I taught at an African-American seminary in, in college. And kind of what set the tone for the town is as soon as you were coming into the town, there was a statue there of an angel cradling a wounded Confederate soldier. Now, I, I wouldn't have minded, I mean, you know, God loves everybody, didn't matter what side of the Civil War they were on, but, um, but the, the worst thing you could think that it could possibly signify, once you got into the town, you saw that actually was what it was signifying in that town. I mean, there were good white people there too, including the, the mayor. She wasn't part of the good old boys. But the former imperial wizard of the Ku Klux Klan lived just outside of town, and that kind of set the ethos for the town. There was an African-American lawyer there. She challenged racism. They ran her out of town on a murder charge. There was uh, one of my colleagues at the seminary. They burned a cross on his lawn. And he he was certifiably paranoid. I mean, the, the street lights, he thought that they had cameras in them, you know, the helicopters, they're watching us. You know, maybe he was right. But in any case, you know, he had reason to be paranoid with all the stuff he'd gone through over the years. Uh, eventually, they ran me out of town, too. Uh, with my water bill, uh, as soon as a friend and I, we published something on racism, as soon as word got around, my water bill doubled. Next month it, it quadrupled, the next month it quintupled, and I got out of town before it could go any higher. But uh, it's, it's not just in, in a town like that, though. I mean, as a, as a father of an African-American son, I, I worry extra when my, when my son is out at night, uh, worry extra about his safety because of his skin color. There was a, there, there's a student here whose son actually was accused of something falsely, and uh, he, he is, is black. He was accused of something falsely. They kept him out of school for, I think, a couple years. Uh, he had to spend time in jail and so on. Uh, there was no evidence against him. It was, it was finally disproved, but uh, there's another story. I'm not quite sure about the details because I didn't hear it directly from the person, but the black son of another student here, as I understand it, some years ago was shot dead at a traffic stop by some white people, and it was very difficult to get them convicted. One of the African-American neighborhoods where I lived, I had to get past the drug dealers, uh, who were on my front porch to get into my apartment. Now, the police called it containment. They would, when the drug dealers would go out into other neighborhoods, the police would chase them back into the African-American neighborhood. And then, of course, you'd say, well, the African-American neighborhood has a drug problem. Well, yeah. I mean, my neighbors would say, we pay our taxes. Why don't the police do anything here? Now, once in a while, you'd see a police car drive by, but they'd never pull over. The drug dealers were dealing drugs in broad daylight. And two police officers a few years before i I, I heard had tried to crack down, and they 'd been transferred, so we figured, you no, know, the police department are getting payoffs from the drug dealers or something. Um, the drug dealers told the kids to stay away from me, but the kids liked me better, which is I, I liked <laughs> I could tell the kids bible stories, but you know the, the drug dealers didn't like that, so all the men in my neighborhood uh, so far as I so far as I knew from talking with them, all the men in my neighborhood carried guns to protect themselves because nobody else would protect them, except for me. I didn't, I didn't have a gun, but I didn't tell anybody that. Now, you're in on my secret now. I'm sure you'll keep my secret. Uh, but just, just in case any of you get any ideas, all these people in the front row are packing. Uh, so, um, they'll, they'll protect me, right? So. Um, But my fourth year there, the police finally started cracking down on the drug dealers. My neighbors and I were so happy, I sent the police department a thank you note. But one day, when I was out jogging, a police officer pulled me over. He said, sir, do you know what kind of neighborhood this is? This is a dangerous neighborhood. There are drug dealers in this neighborhood. And I looked all around at all the children who were playing. He hadn't warned any of the children that there were drug dealers in the neighborhood. And so that night I was teaching a class and I, and I told my students, guess what you guys, I finally got pulled over in account of my race. <laughs> Whereupon they told me all their stories of getting pulled over in account of their race. <clears throat> when, when Paul talks about this, this dividing wall being shattered by the cross of Christ, this isn't something that just happens in Ephesians. This is a, a fairly regular theme in his letters. I mean, you look at Romans, where the, where the church seems to be divided between Jew and Gentile. Uh, especially, you know, most of the Jewish believers were expelled under Claudius's decree, probably in the year 49. Uh, they were able to come back around the year 54. So you probably have a clash of cultures going on there. But um, Romans chapter 1, Gentiles are damned. Romans chapter 2, Jewish people are damned too. Romans chapter 3 pleasantly summarizes everybody's damned. If you think I cussed, look it up in a dictionary. But in <laughs> Romans chapter 4, he says that we're all children of, uh, well, he says we're children of Abraham by faith. So if you want to say, well, you know, I'm better because I'm descended from Abraham, he says, spiritually, any of us can be descended from Abraham. And if you really want to boast about being descended from Abraham, remember Romans chapter 5, all of us are descended from Adam. In Romans chapter 7, if you want to boast because you have the, the Torah, you have the law, he said the law can teach us about what's right and wrong, but it can't make us right. It can't impart righteousness unless it's written in our hearts by the Spirit. In Romans chapter 9, you want to talk about being the chosen people. You want to talk about being chosen for salvation. God is so sovereign. God doesn't have to choose on the basis of your ethnicity. God can choose you on the basis of your faith in Christ. Okay, now that's an Arminian reading. If you're a Calvinist, you can still figure out something to do with it. But (laughs) in in Romans Romans chapter 11, he turns the tables the other way, just in case, you know, Gentiles ever become a majority. He says, don't look down on on the Jewish people, because these branches were broken off. You were grafted in. Well, they can be grafted back in. So it, it depends on having faith in the Lord. So don't look down on your, on your fallen, uh, uh, your, your fallen uh, siblings or cousins. So as he's, he's talking about these things, then he gets to the really practical issues of, of how to relate to one another. In uh, chapter 12, serving one another, chapter 13, verses 8 through 10, the real heart of the law, if you want to observe the law, is loving one another. Chapter 14, he gets really into the nitty-gritty of of how they live. And he says, you know, the food customs and the holy days don't look down on one another because of the differences in those customs. Well, if you read Roman literature from the period, the main things that they looked down on, uh, Roman Gentiles looked down on Jewish people for were their food customs, their holy days, and their circumcision, which Paul dealt with back in chapter four. And then in chapter 15, he talks about uh, reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. Christ is one model for that. And then Paul gives himself as another example of that. And in chapter 16, he gives one closing exhortation, watch out for those who cause division. So this issue of bringing Jew and Gentile together is an issue that runs through many of his letters, including here. And in this letter, he he emphasizes that because of what Christ has done, we've been made one new body in Christ, uh, one new humanity bearing Christ's image instead of Adam's. Now, when we take the Lord's Supper, you know, when Paul speaks of not discerning rightly the Lord's body and and partaking unworthily of the Lord's Supper, the context of not discerning rightly the Lord's body is the context of disunity, of looking down on one another as members of Christ's body. So we partake unworthily if we're divided from our brothers and sisters. Once when I I was praying... I was getting a sense of of the unity of Christ's body, and and I was was feeling Christ's pain as he felt his body being torn apart by disunity. It actually causes our Lord pain when we're divided by race or by other things. And if we love him and we don't want to cause him pain, then we want to be one whole body. <clears throat> Again, this isn't just a black-white issue. Some international students here have not had the best experiences, even though this is Asbury. M- Medine, uh, whom I married 15 years after uh, I was abandoned the first time, uh, well, the only time, um, <clears throat> was a was a war. Uh, yeah, first is in Galatians chapter four. Sometimes uh, uh, it was actually used. Um, not in the sense of former, but it could be used in the sense of earlier. But anyway, um, <clears throat> but Medine, she was a war refugee in her own country for uh, 18 months because of an ethnic war among peoples in her own country. So the general principle applies in a lot of other ways. <clears throat> Verses 14 and 15 speak of this dividing wall that has been shattered in Jesus Christ. Now, it wasn't popular in Paul's day to talk about ethnic reconciliation. In in a few years after Paul wrote this letter, Jews and Syrians began slaughtering each other in the streets of Caesarea, which is where Paul was in Roman custody before he was transferred to Rome. Josephus, who who might be using hyperbole, but Josephus says that Syrians slaughtered 20,000 Jews in one hour. Within a decade Jerusalemites were dead or enslaved. This is the world where Paul had the audacity to run around saying that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile with respect to salvation. This is the world where it was not popular to speak about ethnic reconciliation. This is a world where there was a great cost to speak about this. It ran against the, the tide of the culture, but it was part of the gospel that Paul preached because if we're truly reconciled to Christ, we also have to be reconciled to one another. I I was in an African-American Bible study group in 1992, and there were riots uh, when Rodney King was was beaten by the police. In in the African-American community, we all heard about people being beaten by police before that. But this was the first time it was captured on videotape and widely circulated. And so uh, there were riots that broke out. the Bible study group I was in, some of the students said, we should, we should join a riot. And I said, wait a minute, we're Christians, we have to riot in a Christian way. And they said, how can you riot in a Christian way? Which I thought kind of rather summarized our dilemma. But, <laughs> but Jesus gives us sort of a model for that uh, in what he does in the temple. I mean, one, one person riot. Uh, Gentiles had always been welcome in the temple. First Kings chapter eight, you know, Jew and Gentile together are in the outer court to worship God. But Herod's temple had stricter purity regulations and on account of that you had women on a lower level outside the, what was now the court of Israel and then outside that on a lower level was the, the new outer court where Gentiles could go and there were nice welcome signs um, at the court of the women uh, saying for whites only, no sorry, Nice welcome signs saying any Gentile who goes beyond this point will be responsible for the death which will shortly ensue. This is where Jesus overturned the tables in the temple and in Mark chapter 11, verse 17, quoted two texts from the Old Testament. One of them, Isaiah 56, verse 7, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. And the other, Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11, speaking of impending judgment on the temple. One of the reasons that judgment might be coming on the temple then was that it no longer was a a welcoming place for all peoples. Now, would Paul's audience have known about this kind of thing? Would they have known about this dividing wall when Paul speaks of of the breaking down of the dividing wall? Well, this appears to be a letter to uh, Ephesus and the areas around Ephesus, uh, the Roman province of Asia, probably a circular letter to that region. And they should know why Paul was writing to them from Roman custody. There were some Asian Jews from from that uh, Roman province who falsely accused Paul of violating that dividing wall by taking Trophimus, an Ephesian Gentile, into that place, a member of their own church community, past that dividing wall. And so uh, Paul ended up in Roman custody, and then he preached to the crowds. And, And for a while they were listening to him, you know, this was about the time of Pentecost, and it could have been a parallel to Peter's Pentecost sermon a generation earlier when, when Peter was talking about uh, how Christ died, Christ rose, and then he gives a great altar call, right? <clears throat> well, Paul, he, he, he never makes it to the altar call because after Paul's preaching about Christ, he doesn't get, he doesn't get a chance to say, okay, everybody, bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to see hands all over the place. He says, And Jesus sent me to the Gentiles. And then the riot erupts again. Because for Paul, it wasn't the gospel if it didn't include everybody. If you can't love the people who are going to be your brother and sister in Christ, you can't say you love Christ. So, he's writing to people from the very very location where the Gentile, who was accused of having gone in with him, Lived. He's, he's writing to people who are neighbors of the people who accused him. They obviously know why Paul is writing to them for a moment custody. For them and for Paul, there could be no greater symbol of, of division than this dividing wall in the temple. but Paul has the audacity to declare that in Christ Jesus that dividing wall has been shattered and he's made one new person. While he stays on this theme of the temple, in verses 17 through 22, uh, where he speaks of a new temple in Christ. Verse 17, he speaks of peace to those who are far off and those who are near, echoing Isaiah 57, 19, with the context of God restoring his people. And then he goes on to talk about one new temple with no more dividing wall. In fact, there's not just no dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, but this temple is built of Jews and Gentiles together. Now, the Dead Sea Scrolls, it speaks of, it speaks of God's people, uh, true people, like the people who lived in Qumran, they thought. Uh, they're, they're, they are a temple of God, God's dwelling place. But they, they never would have said Gentiles could be part of that temple. It was holy. Gentiles couldn't be there. But Paul says this new temple of God's people is built of Jew and Gentile together. We are God's temple. All of us are members And there can be no division between us without shaking that temple. We are Christ's body from every nation and kindred and tribe and people. Now, this isn't something that that Paul made up. I mean, you have it in the Dead Sea Scrolls about God's people, but you also have uh, in what Jesus taught in John chapter 4, where he tells the Samaritan woman, it's not going to be in Jerusalem. It's not going to be on this mountain on Mount Gerizim. The true place of worship is one where we're all welcome in spirit and in truth. That's the new place of worship. Some months ago, I had a dream about revival. And and I think it was probably about here. But in the dream, local African-American Christians were invited and one asked, will I be welcome here? And the answer in the dream that God gave was, that's how you know whether it's true revival. Now, from the, from the website, Asbury's website, I gather that Asbury's students, I think this is for both campuses or all campuses, are over 4% black or African-American. Um, Kentucky is over 8% African-American. Uh, Fayette County nearby here is over 14% African-American. Orlando, where we have another campus, is over 28% black or African-American. And helpfully for seminary recruitment, two-thirds of African Americans report being born again. Now remember, Asbury students are over 4% black or African American, hopefully all born again. You can see that we don't even quite meet the the demographic. Um, Is serving our African American brothers and sisters a high priority for the rest of us? And and if it is, what will happen if more African-American students come? How welcome will they feel? Will they feel welcome enough to share their experiences and be believed? And what about students from various other cultures as well? To have unity, we need to have understanding. And to have understanding, we have to listen and hear one another's stories. Christ died to make us one. Are we willing to sacrifice to be one?